This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. Sharon and I have known each other maybe, uh, actually it's since 72 two around we met, something like that, 73? Well, 74, I came back from 74. India, so yeah, it was right after that, 74. Long time. Long time. Yeah. And I remember uh, I went to IMS. Jack invited me to uh, meet you and Joseph. I went to IMS, and it was a, a remarkable experience for me because um, I could see how deeply touched Sharon and Jack and Joseph were by monastic practice. And also the uh, vision of um, the Theravadan world as it translate in, in, translates into Western culture. And I often tell this story. Um, uh, Sharon was telling me about the Brahma Viharas, and I'd been a Zen practitioner since the mid-60s and had this sort of Zenish attitude. And um, <clears throat> I thought it was just sappy, you know, I was like, ah, yeah, I know it's in the Pali canon, yeah, it seems, seems like a good idea, and I'll never forget, Sharon looked at me with these, you know, glimmering green eyes, and she just said to me, do it. <laughs> I was like, ooh. And the way she said it was um, filled with possibility. So, <laughs> so and even as uh, my own uh, Zen stream, which uh, went through several teachers, you know, first in the Korean school, the Vietnamese school, and the Japanese school, um, I've always held the practices that have come out of the Pali Canon as a kind of uh, treasure, which. Um, I want, always want uh, our students here at Upaya to be exposed to, even as the, those practices have been somewhat transformed in the outer way um, through the medium of uh, these fantastic Western teachers. But the inner practice is consistent with the Buddha's vision. 
and is in a way uh, less articulated through the media of various cultures than um, other Buddhist practices like Tibetan, which I cherish as well, and of course Zen practice, which I cherish. So our friendship, we I guess we walked the path almost 40 years together. Mm-hmm. And it's really been a path. a path, I'll tell you. It's been up and down and up and down. Um, but it reminds me of a line I often quote um, uh, that um, the Buddha said to Ananda, the whole of the holy life is good friends. Yeah. And the whole of the holy life is good friends. Yeah. You know, Nanda wanted to know what the holy life was. What is it to walk a, a path that um, is about awakening? And, and the Buddha was very clear. The whole of the holy life, Ananda, is good friends. And it's rather remarkable to um, look at the etymology of one of the words in the title of our retreat, because uh, friend and freedom come from the same root. And that is um, this... Uh, quality not only of being free of bondage, if you understand, you know, when you begin to look at the etymology of the word freedom, um, it means not being in bondage. Um, This is really what the Buddha taught, uh, how to be free. And um, the Buddha also um, actualized that, thank you, Maria. You said to keep drinking. Yeah, okay. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, thank you. Um, The Buddha also actualized um, that sensibility uh, in his relationship with his community. How to have these uh, unmediated, unfiltered uh, friendships which are characterized by freedom, which is really... uh, Fascinating. And another um, uh, etymological root of uh, the word free or freedom is pretty fascinating, and that is um, love. And so there's this uh, experience that is about the unconditional regard of each other and also the unconditional regard of one's own life that kind of unconditionality. So I wanted just to say um, a few things about our time together. Um, uh, Sharon and I decided not to um, hold the clamor down. Uh, Our our Zen students here will have that opportunity actually uh, shortly because they're entering into the summer practice period, which will be studying the works of Nagarjuna Um, as well, the Heart Sutra and so on. Um, But to um, acknowledge the the truth that um, there are many friends in this room and we have come to know each other in an uncommon way over many years. And it's um, lovely to uh, be mindful in our connection with each other and not, you know, in the typical noble silence that many of us experience in our usual retreat setting. At the same time, um, we ask that uh, uh, 
we practice a kind of uh, kindness and mindfulness, um, not to uh, go into this upregulated, super hyper convivial wow state um, that uh, Genzan was talking about. Um, but to uh, hold each other in the way of regard and to let the field of practice uh, be the, the kind of focus or the focus in our time together. So when Sharon said that she could come at this weekend, and um, our schedules are really uh, very interesting. <laughs> it's always, you know, every year we, we try to find some place where our paths can cross here. So next year we found it. I think it's at the beginning of May. Sophie Rinpoche, you and I are... Are you going to be here too? Yeah. Oh, I'm thrilled. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I didn't know that. Are you kidding? I was sitting... <laughs> Well, I don't mean to interrupt you, but go right ahead. Truth be told, I was sitting here thinking it is so tremendous being with you and seeing you that I thought you weren't going to be here in May when I was here with Sophie Mipache. So then I thought, I'm going to have to find another time. <laughs> well, you can but do now that I don't. too. <laughs> like, whoa. Well, you know, he sort of dominates the conversation. So we might have to find another time for our little Dharma uh, dance, nonetheless. Yeah, so. Um, one has to do with what Genzan said is um, see if you just this weekend can keep your eyes off the screens that we're so fixated on. It's really powerful um, to have an e-fast, so to speak. <laughs> and Matt, who was in Tibet with me in you know, one of our nomads clinics and um, very dear friend, his, mother, his brother, and he were all, we were all together. And uh, I guess about the third day in, uh, Jody, uh, Jody Evans, who's this code pink, really radical friend, woman, she looked at me with her flaming red hair and she said, oh, we're on an e-fast. <laughs> <laughs> and we had 30 more days of an e-fast. You know. <laughs> it was pretty uh, interesting to um, do that. So I, I really encourage you to uh, take advantage of this uh, rare opportunity that you've given yourself to be here in the Zendo, uh, to practice, um, and to know the kind of connectivity that arises when we really drop down into who we are at a very deep level. And we can lose it. All the secret documents can be uh, burned in a minute and lost, um, but I, I urge you, please, uh, to 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 cherish uh, this time uh, with each other. And when Sharon said that she could come, you know, it was the weekend after uh, July Fourth. Um, we were thinking about the theme of the of the retreat, and um, we wanted to bring these two valences together. Um, the valence of joy and the valence of freedom. Um, many of our lives are very uh, driven. Um, if you're a social activist or a caregiver or someone in the service world, um, you have this feeling that you just, there's so much suffering out there. And you remember the words of the Buddha, I teach one thing and one thing only the truth of suffering and freedoms from suffering. And you're, you know, you're just driving yourself crazy to end suffering. 
So what we want to do is to come into a field of cessation, you know, a kind of deep uh, internal stopping, which allows for the quality of spaciousness that um, I actually was introduced to when I was a child. And then uh, it was as though I were vaccinated by a possibility which was not in my own uh, cultural and social experience, but I wanted to actualize in my life. And I'd like to say just a few things about that. So I was uh, born in 1942 uh, in Mary Hitchcock Hospital in Hanover, New Hampshire. And um, at this point, Dartmouth um, was a naval training school. And my father was at Dartmouth learning to be an officer and a gentleman. And my mother uh, gave birth in Mary Hitchcock. And I happened to have been the first, quotes, Navy baby to have been born in that hospital, which my mother never let me forget. Um, <clears throat> and then my father uh, went to war. And um, he came back, and he never talked about his war experience till uh, about 10 days before he died. But that war, uh, and he was a very quiet man, very funny, very dry, but extremely introspective. And um, there was something, uh, there was a knot inside of him, which uh, I was very sensitive to uh, from a, quite a young age. And when I was four, um, I woke up one morning and I couldn't see. And I had this uh, serious illness, um, which lasted for two years, during which time um, my parents hired an Afro-American woman to look after me. And this woman, um, she was the manifestation of joy. Um, I've never seen anyone with so much dignity and so much love and joy. It was really uh, phenomenal to be cared for by a person who was free. And just thinking about her really um, kind of makes my throat, uh, it's hard to talk about it um, in a certain way. Her mother um, had been a slave. It just shows you how near slavery of the kind that um, we read about in our history books um, is in our lives or was in our lives. It was very an experience uh, that uh, in the 60s, um, those of us who were in the civil rights movement, we were dedicated to many things, uh, free love. <laughs> but also uh, free <laughs> freedom. We were freedom riders. Um, we wanted to be free, so we did whatever we could with our minds to be free, and we worked for the freedom of others. And this woman, you know how one person will touch your life so that um, that is the arc of your life. Uh, that person, it, no matter um, how long ago she died, um, she still carries you. He still carries you. 
whatever calling, whatever reason that um, brought you here, um, there was a moment when um, you heard a voice or received a touch when you realized um, there is more to this life than um, I've been conditioned to perceive. I've been conditioned to believe. So when Sharon and I were exploring um, what what is really important right now? And um, we both agreed that the theme of freedom, um, not only from the point of view of uh, the Buddhist experience of awakening, which is an experience that, um, I mean, we all want to be awake. And what does it entail to awaken, to be free, to um, go through our pain and suffering, but also not to catastrophize, just as we see the kind of catastrophe happening uh, globally. We also um, have an opportunity to look at things in another way and to uh, practice uh, awakening in the midst of catastrophe. And I think that's why Johnny uh, called his book uh, Full Catastrophe Living. so I had uh, an interview this morning. Some uh, lady uh, is, came to interview me, and um, she was asking about young people. Uh, it was, you know, very. Uh, it was quite an interesting interview because it was about the role of women in Buddhism and social change, and uh, also youth. You know, what impact does this world, this outlier world that we're in right here, how is this affecting young people? And I, was, I thought about her question, and I, of course I had to say, I don't know, you know, I'm not one of them anymore, um, <laughs> although young at heart. But I remember um, my own uh, youth, and the same set of issues were up for me. And those issues were uh, really, can be summarized in the question, how can I um, serve the world so that freedom can be actualized in the lives not just of the two-leggeds, but of all beings. How can I do that? And Matt, who's a good friend of mine, and other young people who are in the room, the Upaya residents, Dear Sorrow, and Zach, and Senko, and others, um, that question, and and James, that question is um, the question that we try to live here. How can um, freedom be actualized in this world? So, my dear, your turn. Hello. How's that for sound? Is it okay? And how are you back there? Are you okay? Okay. Well, thank you so much for uh, inviting me back. I really was sitting here thinking, oh no, I've missed her so much. I'm going to have to come back just so I could see her. And now, I may anyway, but <laughs> but it's sort of, as you know, schedules are not easy. So it was kind of like, okay, it's going to happen. But maybe we can work on having it happen more, which would be great. And I love being in this beautiful place. It's really incredible. Um, 
I always say uh, if you're wondering about etiquette and when to bow and where to bow and all of that, you have to look at Roshi Joan and not at me uh, because I um, am not from the pristine, beautiful, elegant Zen school of Buddhism. Uh, my own main teachers, my earliest teachers were either Burmese or had studied in Burma, and I also have Tibetan teachers. And in terms of the Burmese aesthetic, it's different. And uh, I often say when I'm here that I'm actually from the Schlumpy School of Meditation, <laughs> which is true. And I just had breakfast the other morning after I got here uh, with a friend from Albuquerque who did this very retreat a few years ago. And she said, I'll never forget when you said you were from the slumping school of Buddhism. And I said, I said I was from the slumping school of Buddhism? And I thought, oh, right. <laughs> Schlumpy. Um, so it's kind of the same thing. Uh, but I try to be respectful of the, the customs. Um, because it is so beautiful. It's, uh, everything is in the environment is really designed to help us be more mindful, uh, more aware, and more present with ourselves. Uh, and aside from Schlimpy, if there are terms that you don't understand ever, no, please just raise your hand. Um, for those of you who may not have been familiar with the, the term uh, Roshi used, the four Brahma Viharas, uh, the word Brahma means celestial or supreme. Uh, one translation I heard of it that I liked quite a lot was the word best. And the word vihara means dwelling or abiding or home. So these are four qualities that are taught. I'm sure we will go into them in much more depth um, in our time here together. These are four qualities that are taught which are said to be our best home. And like any home, we may not be there all the time. We certainly leave. But it should be the place when we get back to home, there's a certain feeling where we feel most authentic, least pretentious, most relaxed. We're home. So the cultivation of those qualities is a way of, of having that inner home, which, of course, will never leave us, no matter what. So the first of these qualities is, is loving kindness, uh, the Pali, Pali is the language of the original Buddhist text. The word in Pali is metta, M-E-T-T-A. Um, and sometimes it's just known as metta. Uh, loving kindness is the heart's recognition of the fact that our lives are interconnected. They're intertwined. It doesn't mean we like everybody or anybody. It doesn't mean we invite someone to move in with us. It means that deep down we know everybody counts, everybody matters, that our lives have something to do with one another. The second quality is compassion, the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to seeing pain or suffering. It's actually a movement toward that, that situation, and certainly we'll talk a lot more about that. Um, one of the secret ingredients, actually, of compassion is a kind of joy that's not often discussed because there's uh, such a, a great distinction made in the Buddhist psychology between compassion and sort of being broken. 
by the suffering we may encounter. So that's a fascinating exploration. It's like, what else happens in there sometimes for us or for others so that we can make that differentiation and find a, a real home in, in compassion. The third quality, which we'll talk about a lot for sure, is sympathetic joy, having joy in the happiness of others rather than witnessing someone's success or good fortune and falling sway to the voice which so commonly arises inside of us that says, ew, I wish you had a little bit less going for you right now. <laughs> you know, you don't have to lose everything, but if the light could just dim a bit, I'd feel better <laughs> about myself. Which is sad to say, often the common reaction. So there is a possibility of actually feeling joy in the happiness of others rather than feeling ripped off or threatened or frightened or, or whatever it might be. And we'll look quite a lot at that. And also the relationship between opening to suffering as in compassion and opening to joy, including our own, which becomes the the platform for joy and the happiness of others. And then there is equanimity, which is, that's the fourth quality, the fourth Brahma-vihara, which in this context is sometimes known as the balance of mind born of wisdom. It's like perspective, which also has an element of joy to it, as well as poignancy in many things. But it's like, spaciousness. It's the relief, the joy of kind of release or relief of recognizing I'm not in control of everything in the universe. I can't make this person be a certain way, things like that. So all of these qualities are, are part of our our time together in this exploration. Did you want to say something? Or I didn't mention that. Okay. Um, I'll do that a lot while we're here together. Uh, so I went to India when I was uh, 18 years old. I was interviewed by the same woman, but in the afternoon. Um, so I feel like I told my story just today. And I went, really, as many of you know, because I was a student, a university student. And uh, in my sophomore year, I took a course in Asian philosophy. And quite honestly, looking back, as far as I can tell, it was sort of happenstance. It's like I needed a philosophy course. It was a requirement. I needed a Tuesday course. That seemed a good idea. <laughs> so I thought, I'll take that one. And of course, it totally changed my life. There were a few elements of that course that were most profound for me. And it was really a course in Buddhism. Uh, the first was the Buddha's very unafraid, unashamed acknowledgement of the suffering in life. Because like many people, I'd come from a family with a tremendous amount of turmoil and pain. And like for many people, this was never, ever spoken about. And it was such an enormous relief just to hear it said out loud. You're not alone. You're not weird. You're not different. This is an aberrant. This is a part of life. And then the other thing, which really has to do with joy, was we can do something about the suffering. Not the suffering of circumstance, not the suffering of others' behavior or loss or whatever, but the way we hold everything. 
the degree of presence, spaciousness, compassion, all of that. We have the potential, the capacity to have a huge transformative effect on our lives. So there I was in college, I heard this. And I would say probably half of it was that sense of the admission about suffering. And half of it was just that little inkling, that sense of promise that there might be a way to do something about it. And this was expressed as meditative tools. No one taught it, you know, meditation, but, but it was talked about. And underneath that was some sense of the capacity of the human heart. Because if we didn't have the potential, the capacity for growth, for change, for liberation, for happiness, like why bother, you know, doing, walking a path or, or doing anything. And so it was a sense of complete inclusion. It didn't sound like you had to be a special person or a lucky person or have a certain kind of background or anything. Everybody, without exception, was said to have this kind of capacity. So I was going to school in Buffalo, New York, as many of you have heard me talk about. And they had, this was um, 1970. Uh, they had uh, an independent study program where if you created a project that they liked and approved of, you could go anywhere in the world, theoretically for a year, and then come back and do your final year. It's a kind of cross-cultural study. So I created a project. I said, I want to go to India and study Buddhist meditation. And so this was education in 1970. And they said, sure, that sounds like a great idea. So I left in the fall. Um, which is basically my junior year, the beginning of my junior year, set off with some friends to India. Um, I, like many people in that program, ended up staying a little bit more than a year, although I did go back and finish school um, and then went right back to India. But when I got to India, I was, I was kind of adrift. I, I had very particular kinds of yearnings and desires. I wasn't interested in becoming a Buddhist. I wasn't interested in rejecting anything else. I wasn't interested in philosophy or comparative religion. I wanted to know what those tools might be that I had heard about, those very seemingly practical, pragmatic, immediate tools that I might utilize to be a happier person. And it took a while to find just that. It was really a kind of a journey all in and of itself. I went to Dharamsala, it's where I began, um, because I'd heard the Dalai Lama was there and I heard he was a Buddhist. And so <laughs> I went, it was a long time ago. I went there and there were in fact extraordinary teachers and classes and things like that, but it was one of those circumstances, you know, where things just don't exactly work. Um, I would go to the class to learn how to meditate and be told, oh, the translator's out of town for a few weeks, come back in two weeks. You know, so I'd come back in two weeks and they say, oh, the Lama had to go to the dentist who's on the other end of India, you know, so it's just like, and it wasn't really happening. And so I was actually in a restaurant one day and I overheard a conversation 
where these people said, there's going to be an international yoga conference in New Delhi. And I thought, I'll go there. I'll find my teacher there. I'll finally learn how to meditate. So I went to New Delhi, and it was an absolutely dreadful experience <laughs> where the low point was when these yogis and swamis were pushing and shoving against each other to be the first to grab the mic and speak. <laughs> and it was so demoralizing. Um, but <laughs> at that yoga conference, Dan Goleman was delivering a paper. Uh, at the time, he was a graduate student doing research in meditation. And he said at the end of his speech that he was on his way to this town called Bodhgaya, which is the town that has grown up around the the descendant of the tree under which they say the Buddha was sitting when he became enlightened, and that he was going to do this intensive 10-day meditation course, which was really like what I was, thank you, was looking for. Very non-sectarian, just open, very practical. And I thought, that's it. And it was it. So I went to Bodh Gaya, and in January of 1971, I began uh, meditation in that in that style of of practice. I was very reassured. My first teacher was Goenka, and uh, the first I began meditation in the form of an intensive ten day retreat, never having meditated for one single second before in my life. So, um, I was very reassured when the opening night of that retreat, Goenka said, uh, "The Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life." because that's exactly what I was looking for. And, and that has formed the foundation of my perspective and my understanding all the way till now. So we come here together, even though that was a long time ago, say for me. So the languaging, the metaphors, the imagery, the teachings that I am most comfortable expressing things in comes from the Buddhist tradition. But I really do deeply believe these are universal truths and that it doesn't have to be a, a particular form in any way. Um, so I began meditating at that time, and it was really, of course, life-changing. And it was both, I think, the uh, complete transformation of my ability to be with suffering actually threefold, my ability to be with suffering or pain or distress or unhappiness, the complete transformation of my ability to be with happiness, with pleasure, with delight, with wondrousness, and actually the, the transformation of my ability to be with neutral experience, kind of ordinary, sort of boring a little bit, routine, regular things that we tend to just kind of snooze through. Um, and that's really the heart of, of meditation practice. So I know that some of you are very experienced meditators. Some of you have not meditated at all, and that's fine. Uh, we're going to really emphasize the kind of fundamentals of meditation practice, which I find are useful even if you've been practicing for 20 or more years. Um, and I want to hear from you in a minute, but... Uh, just a couple of other things. We are going to have some periods of silence as well as periods of talking and being together. So we'll just craft the, the time here together. I'll also say that 
it's almost always the case, and we don't have such a huge period of time together so long, uh, but it will be very impactful in its own way. So it, it's kind of a known thing that the beginning of a retreat tends to be sort of the rockiest time. Uh, if you do put away those devices, for example, um, it's different, right, than how we normally live. And I know when I do an intensive retreat, the beginning is really a big adjustment period. You know, it's adjusting to the culture here, like what's going on, how to respond to a bell, what's happening. It's responding to not having such a huge amount of sensory stimulation, all of which is to say, please be patient with yourself and please be forgiving. Um, the bouts of sleepiness, bouts of, bouts of restlessness are so common and they're expected. Don't worry about it. But more of a problem is completely believing the thought, which tends to arise in our minds like, oh, no, 48 more hours exactly like this. <laughs> it's never going to change. Or every single time I try to meditate for the rest of my life, I'm going to be sleepy. You know, so we see a lot of habits and patterns of our mind, and, and that's inevitable. And it's actually interesting, too, isn't it? to see how we can have an uncomfortable or distressing experience in the moment. And right away, we start thinking, it's going to be really bad in a month. It'll be wretched in three months, right? <laughs> so that's all part of the unfolding and, and part of the revelation. But we don't have to believe those thoughts. So in, in that way, you know, being here is its own kind of fun. It's different sort of fun than ordinary fun or conventional fun, but it is, it is its own kind of fun. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.